everyone, and welcome to IJ Notes, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes to explore the work of journalists around the world. I'm Taylor with the IJNet team. In this episode, I interview Dean Yates, a longtime journalist whose struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, led him to become an advocate for journalist mental health. For more than 20 years, Dean worked in the Middle East and Southeast Asia as a journalist and bureau chief for Reuters. He covered war and tragedy on numerous occasions, and since then has been outspoken about the way his experience impacted his mental health. After an absence from Reuters, he returned in 2017 as a journalist, mental health, and well-being advocate. He held the role until January 2020. He continues to speak out about the need to take mental health seriously in an industry that's challenging, dangerous, and oftentimes nonstop. Now take a listen to our candid and challenging conversation. Hi, Taylor. Yes, my name is uh, Dean Yates. Uh, I was a uh, journalist with uh, Reuters, the largest news provider, uh, for 26 years. I covered my first earthquake back in 1994 in Indonesia, and I then went on to cover a lot of traumatic events, the, the big ones being the Bali bombings in 2002, covered the Boxing Day tsunami in Indonesia's Aceh province in 2004, I spent a lot of time in Iraq, Jerusalem for a year in 2006. The big traumatic event for me was uh, how, when three of my staff were killed in Baghdad, including uh, Namir Noor Eldin and Sayed Chum, uh, two Iraqi men who were shot dead by a US Apache helicopter in the streets of Baghdad. Uh, that was an event that was a lot of people will know about because it was uh, footage that was released by WikiLeaks in uh, 2010. That footage has been seen by millions of people around the world. Cut a long story short, all of these events caught up with me. And in 2016, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and ended up in a psych ward because I became suicidal. In all, I had three admissions to a psychiatric ward over three years in Melbourne. Uh, to treat my PTSD. There was a lot of moral injury mixed up in that as well, which, is, which was all related to the deaths of my staff. What I could have done that, that may have protected them. I found that in that psych ward, I, I met a lot of uh, veterans. I met a lot of police, paramedics. And what I found in there was that all of these people had been abandoned by their employers. They had lost their identity they had basically lost everything. And I, I just felt that I, I could do something to raise awareness about PTSD in particular, mental health in general, as a journalist, right? You know, we've, we're communicators. So I just thought I could do something to raise awareness. I could just use the skills that I had and try and tell their story and, and try and bring some attention to these, these issues. And then several months later, Reuters published a, a special report on my own struggle with PTSD. And that, that, this was the end of 2016, and there was a lot of positive reaction to that. And I was inundated with messages from around the world by people from all walks of life, but a lot of journalists, both from within Reuters and from outside Reuters. And I had no idea that so many journalists were suffering, that so many journalists were suffering from trauma, that they were suffering from the things they'd seen, the things they'd witnessed, the dilemmas that they had faced as journalists, 
in the field, for example, the personal traumas they'd gone through and the fact that they'd felt they could never talk about this stuff with their bosses. And so I just thought, I have got to speak up about this sort of thing. I've got, and, and that for me was, and has been the motivation, inspiration for what I then did later at Reuters and for what I do now. Yeah. First of all, the story you have is just incredible, the, the number of challenges. But I think what really stands out is just that you speaking out about your own struggle with mental health gave people permission to speak out, which it seems like in journalism, people normally don't. And what would you say to that? Like, what about journalism as an industry kind of leads people to keep these stories and these struggles to themselves? Well, it's a macho industry, right? And, and it, it has been for a long, long time. And we used to, the way we used to share stories was in a bar by drinking heavily. I, I never used to do this, but a lot of my, my colleagues took drugs. It would be, those memories would be buried that way. They would be dealt with that way. But it was also seen as an industry where you had to show toughness because that was how you got sent back on those, out back on those assignments, right? And you wanted to show that you were ready for the next assignment. You wanted to show that you could do back-to-back assignments in places like Iraq or for people of, uh, so I'm, I'm 51, but so maybe people who are a bit older than me, they could do those assignments in the Balkans or in Africa or wherever it was that, that things were dangerous. And this was an image that it, it was the same for everyone, whether you were old, young, uh, no matter what your gender was, it was, it was just something that uh, journalists were very, very late to acknowledge that the trauma we experienced was something that could affect our mental health. Very, very late to do so. When, when I took on the mental health role at Reuters in early uh, 2017, I first started writing a couple of blogs about my PTSD. And I had um, a few senior colleagues who approached me and said, I want to write about my own battles with mental illness. And I had one guy, Mike Georgie, who was a very seasoned correspondent in the Middle East, covered all the wars in the Middle East. He wrote about his struggle with bipolar disorder. There was another fellow, Andy Cawthorn, who'd been all over the world, who wanted to write about his struggle with burnout. A great friend of mine, um, Emma Thomason, who wanted to write about her struggles with depression and the stress of being a woman running a big financial bureau in Europe at the height of the financial, global financial crisis and being a mum. And so I was just being, getting these people coming to me who wanted to open up about their struggles. And, and it's like you said, Taylor, it gave people, it gave people Reuters permission to speak up and open up and, and seek the help they needed. Those blogs were, it was so powerful. I can't, I just can't tell you how powerful they were. And it didn't cost a cent. That was the other thing. What you're talking about here at Reuters and when you stepped into that position, um, you kind of started seeing, like you said, different types of struggles that people have. So if you can just kind of elaborate a little bit more on what these challenges can look like for journalists, you know, not everyone is struggling with PTSD and, and not everyone has so many traumatic incidents in their past. So I think it can be challenged to find validation or feel like your feelings are valid if it's not maybe as severe. Well, yeah, it's a really good point. And so Andy Cawthorn, the fellow I, I talked about, right, he'd covered all sorts of crises and wars in Africa. He was living in Caracas at the time when he wrote his blog. But you know what he highlighted? He said the biggest stress for him was the daily news cycle, the 24-7 news cycle, the stress, the pressure, getting stories out, the digital overload. And, and so what he did was he talked about 
this sort of stress that everyone faces in journalism. So he wasn't going and saying, look, I'm struggling because I covered the Haiti earthquake. I'm struggling because it is just the news cycle that unrelenting news cycle that is, it is really making it hard for me. And I think that when I, I found that that was the thing that most of my colleagues were struggling with, it was the 24 seven news cycle. It was the stress of that. It was digital overload emails from morning to night, do more with less. My colleagues, the constant restructuring at Reuters that was taking place, people were fearing for their jobs. There was this, this constant pressure to try to, to just keep producing news all the time without feeling like they could unwind. It got to the point where I really felt that some people are on the verge of, of mental breakdowns because of that pressure. And, and so this is not even talking about, this is not talking about trauma. This is just talking about daily stress. And what I tried to do was, was just legitimize that for folks and say, this is serious, this is real. You need to acknowledge that. And, and that's okay if you need to get help. And on the other hand, I tried to talk to the bosses and say, you've got a problem on your hands. You need to address this because this is a real problem. And we all know that, that stress like that can then lead to mental health issues down the track. But yeah. the other thing I wanted to mention, Taylor, as well, that I discovered in this mental health role that I wasn't fully aware of before was the risk of vicarious trauma and how much of a threat distressing imagery poses to a lot of people who they're not out in the field, but they are working with uh, distressing imagery, uh, whether they are um, visual staff, pictures editors, TV editors, graphics editors, online editors, and they're working constantly with this sort of imagery that is coming in through um, from mobile devices, anywhere around the world of events of a distressing nature. And they could be dealing with this stuff multiple times a day. And they have to, to work with this stuff. It's raw. They might have to verify it. Often they're young people. And it is very traumatic. It might take you two days to get to a place like Baghdad. This distressing imagery is in front of someone's eyes in 20 seconds. And then they've got to go home at night and, uh, and, and try and process this sort of stuff. It's very difficult. I think that is something that the news industry as a whole, I think, really needs to, to address in a much more coordinated fashion because I think a lot of people out there are struggling with it because they, they, they feel that it's shameful to raise it because they're not out in the field. I mean, it's okay for me to stand up and say, I've got PTSD. I was in Iraq. I covered all these other events. No one questions that. But someone who's been dealing with distressing imagery, sitting in a comfortable chair in Times Square, they're going to think, oh, well, do I really have the right to say that I'm affected by this? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's definitely something even only recently even have, has entered the conversation. We even have words to describe. And I've started reading a little bit about it, but it seems that it's probably more widespread than we're even aware of. When I, look at the, when I looked at Reuters staff, I actually think more Reuters staff are at risk of vicarious trauma because of the sheer number of people who are looking at distressing imagery than staff who are actually out in the field and at risk of what we would call old-fashioned trauma. Yeah. Yeah. So in this position and, and as you worked with people and also just like in your years of, of dealing with your own challenges, what have you seen as the value of collegial support? I think it's, it is absolutely massive. You can't overestimate the importance of collegial support. You know, Reuters, we called it uh, peer support. 
And there is something special about having peer support. There is something that you can get from having a colleague who knows what you're going through, who you can go and talk to about the issues that you're confronting and have them just be there just, just to talk to. And, and at Reuters, there's a, a formal peer network, which was set up five years ago. The, the numbers of peers, there's probably about 60 now. And they're, they're properly trained in how to sort of provide support and advice. They're not counselors, but they know how to have a conversation. They know how to, they know how to spot the signs and symptoms that someone is really unwell mentally and therefore direct them to professional support if that person needs it. But sometimes people just want someone who is going to understand what they're going through to talk to. You'll find there's a lot of research out there that shows that social support is one of the main factors that will help people actually developing PTSD. It is social support that is one of the biggest things that will help prevent those sort of trauma symptoms from becoming full blown in the end. Because when, you, when you're connected with people, when you feel supported by people and you can share those things, every, every, you know, the whole, what you're going through becomes communalized in a way and you're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really, it's really critical to have that sort of collegial support and, uh, and I think any news organization that's not doing it needs to do it. You'll find that there are people who will do it because they're good people, right? They'll just do it. They'll support their colleagues, but every news organization I think should do it formally as well. But then what role do, do newsroom leadership play in, in these conversations? Well, this is where I think it's, it's, the role of newsroom leaders is absolutely essential to the, the good mental health of a news organization. And, and no news organization is going to function properly without its, its leaders taking the lead on this. And I think, I don't think at Reuters or at other news organizations that they've got the, uh, the priorities right on this. I, I still think my experience was that th there's still a, they don't quite get that you can have, you can make mental health of your staff a, t a top priority and still achieve outstanding journalism. In fact, I think you, if you make the mental health of your staff a top priority, you will achieve outstanding journalism because stressed journalists, traumatized journalists can't do great journalism. It's just not, it's just not possible. But I always got the sense that when I was at Reuters with this mental health role, the things that I was trying to do was always, a, for some people in senior management, it was always a low priority. It was like, oh, here comes this guy again, you know, pestering us about this. I actually don't think they felt comfortable with, with my mental health role or me in it. You know, I could be pushy. I could be impatient. In the end, I was actually probably hostile because we weren't doing enough of what I, I felt we should have been doing. But given the amount of stress that Reuters journalists were under, given the amount of pressure they were under, I just think it was, it was a moral imperative to put their mental health first. And I actually don't think that was being done. And so it, it comes down to doing what is right for your staff, especially when you know the sort of stress and pressure that you are putting them under, especially when you know that you are exposing them to trauma be that in the field or in the newsroom via distressing imagery. You can't just close your eyes and pretend that they're, they're working in a field that is, is safe, right? 
journalism is not a safe occupation. And so you need to go above and beyond to ensure that the mental health of all your staff is looked after. It needs to be, the, it needs to be given the same priority as the physical safety of journalists, whether they're in a war zone or whether they're out on the streets of American cities right now covering the protests as part of this uh, uprising, if you like, against uh, police brutality. Right. Yeah. And so what would that look like if you had the ideal newsroom leadership? How would they handle these questions and what would happen in an ideal situation? So you've got to really look at what, what, have, you, what have you got to begin with? What are your mental health policies? And you've got to review what you have. For example, does HR actually have anything written down that supports the mental health of their staff? You know, in the three years I was at Reuters, I couldn't get HR to create a single word to support the mental health of our staff. You have to have passionate people responsible for the mental health of newsrooms who actually sit on the leadership of the news organization. You need to have strategies. You need to have a strategy that is agreed by the, the leadership and then implemented. Uh, it, it, it can't just be something that's sort of done off uh, ad hoc and it needs to be transparent and it all needs to be brought under one roof in a place where all staff can get a sense of, well, oh, this is what's going on. Yeah, I see, where the, I see where the mental health of this organization is going. You know, I tried to create a website at Reuters, started working on it back in early to, uh, late 2017. As far as I know, the website's still not out there. So these are the sort of, this is the sort of resistance that I, I think exists to making mental health for journalists a priority. You need to have all this information in one place, a mobile friendly resource that journalists can turn to so that they can get the information they need and, and put people in charge who actually know what it's like to be a journalist, who know what it's like to be on that front line, whether that front line, that front line today could be uh, social media. <laughs> I mean, I was fine going to Baghdad, but I'm not sure I'd like to be on the front line of social media these days. Seriously, tell I'm not sure I can handle that sort of stress. So you need to have people who driving policy around mental health that know what it's like. Yeah, I wonder what you would say to, you know, a news leader who, like you said, are, are being asked to do more with less, right? They're more strapped for reporters, time and all and money sure. and everything like that. So how do you see this fitting in even as newsrooms are really struggling right now? Well, this is, we, we had to cope with this at Reuters for decades, right? You just do less important stories. You just have to be willing to cut the sort of stories that are less important. It's a management decision. It's a bureau chief decision. It's a newsroom leader decision. You take responsibility for saying, we're not going to cover that story. We are going to throw everything at the top story. All right. Right now, the top story in the United States is the Black Lives Matters protests and COVID-19 US election. If that's all you've got the resources for, that's all you're able to cover. You'll often find that there's a lot of ass covering in newsrooms where they're thinking, oh, I've got to cover this. I've got to cover that. And then some editor might come down hard on them because someone else, other news organization will have covered a story. You've just got to actually be brave and say, we're not covering these other stories now. We're, we're, we're going to focus all our attention on these top stories and we're going to do them really well. Or we're going to focus our attention on these investigative stories. We're going to break news and that's where we're going to prioritize our stuff. That's where we're going to make a difference. 
with the resources that we've got with this. I hate that word resources anyway, but with the staff that we've got, that's how you have to, I think, operate in the world that you've been handed in this uh, era of, of incredibly short staffed newsrooms. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I wonder if the tides of the general population view towards mental health. Do you feel like that's changing in general as well? Do you see that kind of sparking change in the industry? I know you said that you still feel like journalism got on board a little late. I, th- I think in general, I think in society, in, in, well, look, put it this way, in Western societies, there's generally more openness about the discussion of mental health. But I, it's not it's not in the workforce yet. Because, and this is the same thing I encountered at Reuters, right? I would have one of the biggest issues at Reuters was people were afraid to disclose they had a mental health condition because they didn't know if it was going to affect their career. They didn't know if it was going to affect their chances of getting an assignment somewhere. How would it affect their, their chance of promotion? And so, you know, I was talking about those blogs, all those blogs that we did, the vast majority were written by old people like me, people whose careers were already well established. I could not get a single person under the age of say 30, 35 to write a, a blog about their mental health condition. And I don't blame them. They didn't want to jeopardize their career. So until workplaces actually come out and say, we want you to, to disclose, we want you to come out and, and say that you've got a mental health condition so that we can support you until workplaces actually say that explicitly, a lot of people are just going to keep it secret. Yeah. And I think modeling yeah. too in like leadership and things, right? hundred percent. You've got to have leaders come out and say, you'll find organizations where leaders have come out and, and, and talked about their own mental health illness. Those sort of organizations, you'll find there'll be a lot of people who will do the same. If leaders don't do it, others won't do it. And this is where the media could play a big role because I think the more journalists that come out and talk about their mental health issues, that sort of stuff's going to get coverage, right? People will read those stories. They'll listen to those. It, and we communicate it. So this is the sort of thing we can do, right? That's, the, well, that's what we did as, as, a, as a career. So let's do it. Yeah. So can you tell us about some other mental health interventions that you've seen work for journalists in the past? I think um, one of the most effective uh, interventions, certainly that we had at Reuters, there is a fantastic counseling service that has been there uh, for a long time and it's a, a trauma support and counseling service 24 seven uh, available to all, all staff and, and stringers. And it has meant that anyone who is going through any uh, mental health issue can get help very quickly. And I used it at one point when I was in Baghdad, I know a lot of, a lot of my ex colleagues used it. A lot of them found it really helpful. It's meant that the professional support has been there when, when folks have needed it. I, I think um, yeah, journalists are pretty, we can be pretty skeptical people, right? And we will often say, well, how can, that, how can these people actually help us? And I was the same. After I'd covered the Arche tsunami, I was actually, one of my editors ordered me to go and see a psychologist. And I, I said, how can this, this person, what, what would they, how could they help me? I was really skeptical. It was a bit stupid of me, really. But but these people can help and they can help by just getting you to talk about your experiences. I, I think that's been the, that's, that's been a really wonderful initiative that, that Reuters has had. And I, I worry that it's not available to a lot of journalists though, especially freelancers, because how do they pay for this sort of service? 
I guess in terms of other interventions, um, the other thing that we did, at, which I thought was quite effective, was resilience training at, at Reuters over a, a, a couple of years. And um, it was, uh, this was a, an evidence-based program that had come out of Australia that uh, called Raw Mind Coach, which was um, affiliated with some of Australia's best think tanks here. And it was basically an online training program that, that built resilience. You know, the idea being that, you know, the way I see resilience is it's something that you, it helps you adapt everything that life, life throws at you. This program would take you through various little training exercises, you know, how to deal with um, difficult thoughts, how to, uh, how to adapt to situations that you're outside your control and so on. And we ran a couple of challenges last year, for example, during the months of May and October. And we had a surprising number of journalists who took part in those challenges because we gave everyone a day off who did it. And the results were actually quite amazing in terms of how the resilience levels of the journalists improved who did those courses. And, and I think interventions like that where it's, it's targeted, it's not a fruit bowl, it's not a free yoga class. I'm not saying these things are, are bad, but things that are evidence-based that have got real focus, I think can be very important because you need staff, staff need to understand this is serious, that you really care about them, they've been thought through. And a lot of journalists said to me, colleagues said, you know, this resilience program was really interesting. And some of them then started getting their teenagers to do it, for example, because, you know, it was helping their kids with exams. So there are just a couple of examples of interventions that I think uh, were quite effective. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really helpful to give um, to give concrete examples of what this would actually look like in practice. Mm. Um, and yeah, and that's really interesting to hear um, a training like that. And I wonder how that could be replicated in other newsrooms as well. You know, I, here's the thing, right, Taylor? You look at the amazing work journalists do right you look at the amazing stories i mean i am constantly amazed at the work colleagues at reuters do that that other news organizations do what i want to see in return is news leaders looking after the staff looking after the mental health of the staff who do those stories because it takes a lot out of people right to do that sort of work those folks who do that work deserve to be looked after. Their mental health really needs to be protected. And I don't think news leaders always have that at the forefront of their mind. The way I see it, mental health in the workplace is a fundamental human right. And news leaders need to really recognize that. So thank you for talking about all of you know, You're your welcome. own experience and, and, and just being open about mental health in general. And I think we're really trying to kind of pave the way for this conversation to hopefully be taking place in more and more newsrooms. So what can listeners look forward to from you and where can we find, you know, more information about your work and sort of what should we be watching out for? So I'm, I'm, in the, I'm writing a memoir at the moment about the journey that myself and my family have taken through trauma, PTSD, moral injury, psych ward admissions. You know, it's a story about um, a story about struggle, but it's also a story about love, and a story about how my family are still together despite everything that uh, that this trauma threw at us. And I found enormous meaning in life now. And it's about my wonderful wife who has stuck by me. And I, I, I hope that the central message that comes out of this memoir will be uh, 
be one of hope. Yeah. And where can we find you on the internet so we can keep up to date on, you know, yeah, you just have to more. just type me in, in uh, LinkedIn or Facebook. I'm working on a website, but I'm not making much progress on that at the moment. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dean. It was really great to talk to you about your experience. You're welcome, Taylor. Thanks for asking. It was always good to, good to share. And uh, I, I just, uh, like I said before, I got a, so much respect for any journalist working out in the field these days, working in newsrooms, wherever they are, whatever they're doing. And I, I just, you know, my final message would be to any journalist out there, it's a, it's a tough business, it's rewarding, and it, it's, it's a calling for so many people. And if you get help, if you think you need it, don't think that just because you're not, you're not in a war zone or you're not covering some humanitarian crisis doesn't mean you, you can't put your hand up and get help. It's an act of resilience to get help. So if you feel like you need it, do it. It's, it's, it's really the best thing to do. Thank you so much to Dean for speaking to us and for the work he does on behalf of other journalists. If you like listening, you'll be happy to know that there's more where that came from. This is the second episode in our series on journalism and mental health. In the first episode, former IJNet intern Katya spoke with Anna Mortimer, a journalist, therapist, and co-founder of The Minefield, which connects international development workers and journalists with licensed therapists. You can find it anywhere else you can find IJNotes. Follow IJNet on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to be the first to know when we release the next episode of IJ Notes. And check out our website, ijnet.org, for more resources on mental health and journalism. If there's anything we can do to support your work, please reach out to us. And until next time, stay safe and take care of yourselves. Music